I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland, and you hated La La Land, but I gotta make you understand. So I need you to like musicals. Listen, I don't like this any more than you do. This hurts me more than it hurts you, podcast audience. I wanted to talk about Greece this week. Remember when I alluded to that last week, that that might happen? Well, that's not happening. And you know that if you've read the episode title and the episode description. We're going to talk about a couple other shows this week. And it's not what I wanted. So Acts of God, Forces of Nature, uh, transpired. And here we are. We had some house guests staying with us this past week. Longtime friends of my dear girlfriend, Shailene. And uh, they came with their kids. Uh, so the husband and wife came with their kids. And before I met any of these people, including Shailene, in 2019, they bonded over the shared experience of seeing the film version of Cats in the movie theaters. Uh, and they've been joking about it ever since. And Shailene decided... I want to say Thursday night that it was real important that uh, they do a rewatch and they get me involved who uh, happily had never seen the film version of Cats. Now, since I have a podcast called I Need You to Like Musicals and I, I don't know if you noticed there was a week off because I didn't have time. I had midterms. I had people coming over. I, I didn't uh, do the podcast last week. And so I was a little bit behind and I said, well, Jesus, if we're going to watch a musical, I should probably take notes and do an episode on it. And that ended up being this. Uh, Cats. I saw the movie Cats. My God. Uh, let's, let's circle back. Let's start at the beginning. This is a mess already. The thing about this episode is I have no idea where it's going to go. I have no idea if it's going to be the shortest episode in history of this podcast or the longest. Uh, because my notes, I don't have, I, I didn't know, I, I was in new territory here. I don't know how to take notes on this thing because it's nonsensical. And it has no reason to be. And it's a musical that disappoints children. Including me, when I saw it on stage in the 90s. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to I Need You to Like Musicals, the podcast, where, paradoxically, we're going to talk about, first, a musical that uh, I don't even need to tell you that I need you to not like it, because chances are you don't like it. I would be, as successful as this fucking thing is, I cannot imagine meeting a living, breathing human being that would say that Cats is their favorite musical. I've never met a single person that likes the musical Cats on any level. What the fuck is going on? How did this happen? This is a ripple in history. Can somebody explain it to me? I've never had a guest on this show before, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make an offer right now. And I, I'm not I didn't plan this, but I just if if you are somebody that has a really good argument for what is good about Cats, I would love to welcome you onto the show. We could do it over Zoom. We can do it however you want to do it. If you're in Southern California, we could sit down, put the cans on, as they say in the in the business, <laughs> and just make an argument to me. And I won't even argue. I won't. Uh, I mean, I'll argue certainly, uh, because it's illogical that you like it if you're a person that likes it. But I'm happy to have uh, all of this challenged. 
I, I need to know what's good about it because it's just, I, and I'm not even trying to be funny. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I don't get it. This is a musical that confuses people. It's confusing. Now, before you get up on your hind legs and write to me and say, have me on your podcast because I know what the point of this is and where it comes from, I understand that it's based on poetry by T.S. Eliot, okay? I know what modernist poetry is and who T.S. Eliot was. I am well instructed in these things. So go fuck yourself. That's not my point. Um, what I don't understand is how it's entertaining and how it should, why it's a musical, why anyone thought it should be a musical, and then once it became one, how it was such a successful musical. Help me. I don't get it. I was taken to see this on stage when I was a child uh, in Los Angeles, California. I don't remember which show, uh, theater it was. Could have been the Pantages, could have been the Amundsen. Hell, could have been the Schubert, no longer there, Century City. I was excited because I was a young man who enjoyed musicals. I heard that there was an Elvis cat. There's a cat that uh, did an Elvis Presley thing, and that, I was on board. I was a big fan of Elvis in those days as a young child. I, ha I bought Brill Cream a little dabble do ya, and put it in my hair and tried to make my hair like Elvis. I had little toy soldiers and I made them sing Elvis songs rather than fight wars. So, uh, listen, I, I was, I came in with high hopes. I feel like this is a very common experience that there are posters around town for Cats, the musical. You see these people in these costumes as dressed as cats and you're a child and you get really excited and you say, Mommy, Daddy, let's go see cats. I want to see cats. Why can't we see cats? And then your parents, maybe they've read a New York Times article about it. Hell, maybe they've seen it themselves. And they say, are you sure you want to see cats? It might not be what you think it is. Yes, I want to see cats. And then you see cats and womp womp. This was a waste of everybody's time. Cats is a great example for why people don't like musicals. Cats sucks. There's very little redeeming about cats. I'm gonna try to be fair to those elements that are redeeming and uh, talk about them as we go along here. But this is, this is a tough one, guys. And I'm sorry for all the negativity. Next week, I promise. Next week is gonna be two net positives. I promise, because I know last week we had some trouble <laughs> doing that, and this week we're going to have a lot of trouble doing that. So, okay, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Les Rob. You know that already. I'm not, I don't hate Les Rob as much as I hate cats, okay? And I don't uh, feel like I need to define myself by what I hate. But, um, uh, Les Miserables, uh, I don't love Les Rob either. But we're going to start with cats because I want to get it out of the way. I don't even know how to talk about it. And I'm stalling. Have you noticed that? That I'm stalling? This is not the usual format. I'm just, I'm, I'm just whipped up into a frenzy here about cats, everybody. I cannot believe this movie that I saw. And I cannot believe... Anyway, um, cats led the shift in the Broadway market toward big budget blockbusters. Um, which is, as we have learned through the course of this podcast, is a bad thing. We don't like that. Right, guys? We don't like that. We like well-written musicals that don't have big budgets. Fuck you, cats. Not only do you suck, you made everything else suck. Thanks a lot. The poet T.S. Eliot <laughs> wrote, uh, there's a book called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Now, what this consists of 
are poems about cats. <laughs> jellicle cats. Believe it or not. These are not just any cats. These cats are jellicle. What does jellicle mean? It doesn't mean anything. Um, he would write a poem about a cat and he would send it to one of his godchildren. And he did this over and over again to the point where there were many of them. One at a time. Keep that. That's crucial. Keep that in your mind. That if, you're, um, if your godfather is the great T.S. Eliot, you get a poem in the mail about a cat, and maybe it's it's exciting. Oh, this one's about the the theater cat. Oh, this one's about the uh, whatever cat. The uh, boy, that was the only cat I could think of. What's the one that I'm? Uh, what's her name played? The cat in, that's lazy. Uh, the Gumby cat. Oh, a Gumby cat. That that's fun, right? You're having a good time hearing about these cats. <laughs> so read one poem about a cat. That's very sweet. Put them all in a book? Uh, okay. That's fine. Okay, then, our, our, great. We can reference, we can open it, uh, open it up, and before bed we can read one poem about a cat. Have a reading where we read all of these poems aloud? That sounds like a bad idea. Let's not do that. Sing all of these poems in a row with no connecting plot? Worst idea in the history of storytelling. But it happened and it struck gold. There is no lyricist for Cats. Cats is uh, poems of T.S. Eliot set to music. Now, he never really says this, this Andrew Lloyd Webber, who is, by the way, if you don't know, this is Andrew Lloyd Webber, again, for the third goddamn time. Our buddy from Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, he's back for another episode, this time Cats, which, if you ask me, is his worst thing that he's ever done. I have not really delved into some of the other ones. I haven't seen School of Rock. I have not. Uh, I know that Starlight Express is uh, pop, uh, the, uh, colloquially his biggest failure. And um, I'm sure that By Jeeves is not very good. But my point is, this is his big uh, success and it's a piece of shit. So he starts dicking around, uh, doing little songwriting exercises with the T.S. Eliot poems. Because he liked them as a kid. And he never actually says this, but I get the sense that he was sick of Tim Rice and didn't want to work with him anymore and said, how do I get around this? How can I not hurt Tim's feelings by reaching out to another lyricist? Why don't I just like get some pre-written lyrics? Okay, here are some poems. I'll do that. Now, if you talk to somebody who knows what they're actually doing, like a Stephen Sondheim, you'd have to get some smelling salts to do that because he is dead. But if you find out about uh, his theories on poetry versus lyric writing, which he talks about at length in the introductory chapter to Finishing the Hat, his book from 2010, he talks a lot about the fact that you cannot set poems to music in the same way that you cannot read song lyrics aloud without music. Lyrics are music dependent, poems are not. In a poem, the music is already contained in the words. They are already animated by music. And he does some examples of this. He shows us this. Andrew Lloyd Webber did not get the memo. He decides, let me just cut some corners here and just set these poems to music. And he loved these poems as a kid because he's a British man and they all worship T.S. Eliot over there. My dad was big on T.S. Eliot. My dad, by the way, uh, was a poet himself and he called himself T.S. Kerrigan his name was Thomas and he got a poem into uh, a Garrison Keillor anthology 
and here are there uh, a couple other places. He was a poet, and he uh, liked T.S. Eliot enough that he called himself T.S. He was also a theater critic and a lawyer, and um, the, the, his theater critic buddies used to call him Tough Shit Kerrigan, the T.S. son, because he was a harsh critic. Just like his son, I'm, I'm a chip off the old block. So um, <clears throat> he did a little song cycle. He wrote enough of these fucking songwriting exercises that he, he thought, I'll do a little Cats song cycle. And guess who he invited to that? He had the audacity to invite T.S. Eliot's widow to come and see it. T.S. Eliot's widow came, and they were really worried that, to please her, because they're like, hey, if this has any future at all, she has to sign off on it. And she liked it. Maybe she was hard of hearing, I don't know. But she came and she brought a little stack of unpublished cat poems that T.S. Eliot had written that only she had access to. One of them was a poem about Grizabella the Glamour Cat, which he never published because he said it was, quote, too sad for children, unquote. And this really ties the whole thing together for Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he says, let's go. This is more than a song cycle. This is more than a songwriting exercise. This thing is destined for Broadway. But first, the West End, certainly, because that's how they do that across the pond. He has the idea of tying it into a plot, but it's, it's, it's a plot that is no plot at all, if you've ever seen it. All the, the only plot there is is that these cats that are getting introduced one by one are doing so at the Jellicle Ball, and they are competing... <laughs> They're introducing themselves in front of old Deuteronomy to find out which one of them is going to go up to the heavy side layer. Are you confused by what I just said? It's not you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's because it doesn't make any fucking sense! It doesn't make any sense. And when the movie came out, I didn't see it because I was anti-cats. Cats was the embodiment of what I felt was wrong with the Andrew Lloyd Webber thing. I, like I said, I liked aspects of Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, but I was a Sondheim guy, and I'd been uh, so displeased by Cats as a child that I had no desire to see the film. But everybody, when they saw it, some of my friends who are non-musical theater people, they reached out to me, they said, Chris, help me. Help me with this. What is a jellical cat? What does that mean? What's happening? What is an old Deuteronomy? What is a heavy side layer? Why is there a jellical ball? What is going on? I didn't have any answers for those people. I still don't have any answers for you. I don't think that the writers of the show have any answers for you either. It's a ripple in the time-space continuum, the fact that this thing ever happened. Andrew Lloyd Webber really got behind this thing himself, like financially. He took out a second mortgage to fund it because no one else would get behind it because they thought that it would be a big flop. And they were right, or they should have been. What happened? How did this thing get as popular as it got? How did it run for so long? I keep coming back to that question, and I imagine that's going to keep happening. I could understand a little bit. So uh, the thing that I did as a child, and like I, what I described earlier about how you're a kid, you see the posters. Oh, my God, it's cats. It's just called cats. Oh, well, that's fun. It's a musical about cats. Let's do this. But you, then you, when you go to see it, it's one of those things where at around the 20-minute mark of watching Cats on stage, you're like, oh my god, I feel unmoored. This, this show is not giving me any guidance towards where it's going, what it's doing, or why it's doing it. 
And I tried, you know, I'm a little pressed for time on this podcast today. I'm trying to, I'm probably going to do a a pause in the middle and record the second half after I get back from doing what I'm supposed to do at six o'clock today. But um, there's a good quote from Sondheim about Merrily We Roll Along and the hostile reaction to it. He said that it's good to challenge an audience. Like there's nothing wrong with challenging your audience. But when an audience feels confused, that's murder. And um, I mean, the people I was watching this with were confused. A lot of people have expressed their confusion. Harold Prince. Let's talk about what he said about it. Let me find that quote, actually, because that's important. Okay, here we go. This is an abbreviated version, but uh, here we are. So, Andrew Lloyd Webber played the score of Cats for Harold Prince, legendary director. He had directed Evita, etc. And this is what Harold Prince said about it. I looked at him curiously and I said, Andrew, I don't understand this. Is this about English politics? Are those cats Queen Victoria, Gladstone, and Disraeli? He looked at me like I'd lost my mind, and after the longest pause, he said, Hal, it's about cats. And we never discussed it further. So that would be a really funny, interesting story if after that meeting with Harold Prince, Andrew Lloyd Webber had just given up on the idea which any sane person would have, but he didn't. He took out a second mortgage. He believed in this thing and it paid off. But I don't buy it. Something happened. There's some conspiracy. The popularity of cats is like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Well, I shouldn't say that. I kind of am. Not one of the, not an annoying one, not a right wing conspiracy theorist, but I, uh, I think that there's a conspiracy behind the popularity of cats. I think that uh, certain people were paid off to uh, inflate the stats, the cat stats. As if the musical weren't bad enough, they made it into a film. And the the 2019 film, man, it it is ghastly. It is the worst choice of a musical to make a movie into. And to make into a movie. I did not have high hopes because I saw it on stage as a kid, didn't like it. This is worse than I ever could have imagined. They took out the one element that gave it any redeemable value, which is like the dancing, and they snuffed that out by making it a weird CGI thing with uncanny valley aspects to it. Even Andrew Lloyd Webber doesn't like it. There are a host of very funny tweets about Cats when it came out. Um, My favorite is from Rob Delaney, comedian Rob Delaney from uh, Catastrophe and other things. He says, uh, this is what he tweeted. Just stormed out of cats with my sons Byron and Tannis because of how much the Judy Dench cat licks her own asshole. Once I'd understand, but she acts like the thing is a goddamn buffet. Tannis is still crying. <laughs> um, yeah, this, and it's widely considered to be one of the worst films ever made, one of the worst movie musicals of all time. Uh, it made film history in that um, they sent out an updated version of it a few days or weeks after it opened because there were all these CGI errors and glitches. There's a, there was a part where you could see Judy Dench's hand complete with her wedding ring instead of the cat paw it was supposed to be. And so, yeah, first time they'd ever done this. Universal uh, up to, sent an updated version to all the theaters with, quote, improved visual effects. 
So anyway, I'm not gonna, I think that I'm not gonna spend too much, I already spent 20 minutes on an unhinged, uh, directionless rant here. So I'm just gonna briefly go through the arc of cats, because there is little arc to cats. It starts with some kind of exciting music that gives you high hopes. I I, I enjoy the I like that. It's exciting. Unfortunately, then people start saying words, singing words. Are you blind when you're born? Jellical cats, jellical cats, angelical cats, jellical songs, angelical cats, jellicals, can angelicals do? And what the fuck is a jellical cat? There's no answer to that. I think that probably one of the more Googled searches in 2019 was what is a jellical cat? And nobody ever got the answer they wanted. So don't bother. The answer is there is no, no such thing as a jellical cat. We meet a Gumby cat, played by Rebel Wilson. And in the movie, it's kind of like, okay, good, finally something fun here. Not just this weird middle place of dancing, quasi-sexual cat beings. And it's this cat that hangs out in the kitchen and uh, is real lazy, I guess. <laughs> and there's kind of a tss, 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 like jazzy element to it. I don't know. And that would be so scary, some of this, like, to see in your kitchen. I remember, like, watching The Little Mermaid as a kid, and the end, that big battle sequence on the water on the beach when there's an enormous Ursula on the water on the beach at night. I remember thinking how fucking terrifying that would be to actually see in real life on the beach. Imagine if you came out of your bedroom to get a glass of water in the kitchen, and you saw these fucking cats doing this song and dance with the, the termites, or whatever the fuck they are, cockroaches, making them march in a line. Horrible. They get into a Rum Tum Tugger song. Rum Tum Tugger is a doo-doo-doo cat. Catchy tune. Pointless. I think that's the one that it was Elvis when I saw it. I could be wrong about that. I don't care. That's what's wrong with this episode, is that I don't care. And I was watching the movie with other people, and I felt self-conscious about the fact that I was taking notes on it like a self-important asshole. Then there's a McCavity cat played in the movie by uh, the guy from The Wire in The Office. You know who I'm talking about. You know that guy. You know that dude. <laughs> the British guy. Uh, there's a cat called Bustopher Jones. I can't, and it makes me feel like I can't believe that I defended James Corden in his Into the Woods performance. Because, uh, yeah, pretty bad. The narrator is my least favorite cat. I don't know how to say his name. Strap. The narrator. It's like, shut up, dude. And stop being like, ooh. The whole tone of this is like it's being sung to children. But it's enough to make a child go crazy. Did Andrew Lloyd Webber ever have children? Does he have any? Or any grandchildren? Did him and Sarah Brightman? I, I know very little about the biography of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Actually, I got a very nice uh, correspondence from a fan in the past week. Uh, setting me straight on the, the intention behind writing Don't Cry For Me Argentina and they sent me uh, photos of the book of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's autobiography I didn't know that existed and I, I did not reference that for this because uh, he doesn't deserve it I, I, he's so mean for writing cats he is so that was so uncalled for I feel a sense of disequilibrium even talking about it 
it's just so frustrating. Old Deuteronomy. I mean, so uh, that's Judy Dench in the movie. It's a big dude, I think. <laughs> it's a male, usually, on stage. It's an enormous old cat. Do cats really respect their elders like that? I've never really seen a lot of cats together at the same time. But uh, it's weird that these cats have such reverence for this big old cat. You find out later that Ian McKellen is going to play San Gus, the theater cat. But, like, why the fuck? My first thought is, like, what the fuck is he doing there? They have him, like, as a glorified extra. It's like, is that Sir Ian McKellen? Why did you waste his time making him be in the background? Being like, oh, oh, oh. I just... <laughs> my notes here are just, like, all caps with a million question marks. I fundamentally do not understand the appeal of this. <laughs> And, and um, why is it so serious? It takes itself very seriously. It signals to you where they're, where they're trying to have a little fun. The Gumby Cat and the Rum Tum Tugger, I guess. But it seems really fucking serious. And I don't know why. At one point in the show, in the movie, sorry. Watching the movie... The lead cat, I guess, Victoria or whatever, who I on stage, I don't think Victoria is as important. Victoria is a dancing only role. In the movie, Victoria starts to sing this song. And you're like, okay, this song seems to have some f real feeling in it. This song seems to be telling a coherent story. That's unusual. Why is that happening? And then you look it up and you realize it's because Taylor Swift wrote it. Taylor Swift, who appears in this later, wrote a song for the film that she does not sing, somebody else sings. And you're like, oh, that's why. Good job, T-Swift. I'm not a big Taylor Swift fan. I enjoyed the Folklore album, and then everyone told me that the next one was good too, but I, 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 I didn't like Folklore enough to like keep on going. But that's a nice little song. <laughs> and it comes right after a little sneak preview of Memory. Uh, Jennifer Hudson sings Memory, which is, I guess that's the appeal of this. Like, the the one song that anyone can ever tell you is from this, like, to hum, and I know that hummable tunes aren't the point of anything, is Memory. That's the song that people like, Memory, okay? Um, by the way, those of you who are concerned, I have not relapsed on alcohol or drugs. I know that it sounds like it. I think that maybe it's just, like, Maybe I'll scrap this episode. Maybe I'm just not in the mood for this. And Cats is just so bad that all I can say is Cats is really bad. Let's just get through it. Let's get to the end of it. I actually only have a few more notes here. So yeah, Ian McKellen's Gus the Theater Cat. It's one of the few scenes I remember seeing on stage. And I remember looking forward to it because I saw the song in the program, Gus the Theater Cat. I was like, oh, cool. I like theater. I can't wait till that song. And it's very disappointing. It's all about how Gus is this old fucked up cat with a palsy in his paw so he can't act anymore and he's got all these memories of past glory taylor swift comes out and sings mccavity the mystery cat what a weird song to give to taylor swift it's like a nothing song why didn't she sing the song she wrote the whole thing so they're competing to go to the heavy side layer which you know there's no point in having any kind of allegorical debate about what the heavy side layer is just suffice to say it's like it's a form of death but it's heaven but it's like where you go maybe before you start another one of your nine lives because you're a fucking cat and you have eight more the heavy side layer is up top 
And on on stage, you go up this goddamn staircase off to God knows where. And in the movie, you float off on something, little <laughs> propeller thing. The song "Memory" is fuck is it's played out. There's really no way of knowing if "Memory" is a good song because we've heard it too many times. It's too much in our memory, if you will. It's too uh, solidified in there that you can't get an objective. Um, none of us will ever have the experience of hearing memory for the first time. I guess that's like if melody were enough, then memory would be a good song. But melody is not enough, guys, unless you're just making albums or symphonies. It doesn't make any sense. My little sister saw this with us when we were kids, and she said her favorite part was at the end. Because on stage, she wants people to touch her in the first act, and everybody's recoiling from touching Grizabella, the glamour cat, because, I don't know, something happened. She is a ruined woman, <laughs> cat, because of whatever McCavity did to her in the old days. I don't. It's not really explained. And then my little sister's favorite part was when they all would touch her at the end. And that makes the song make a little more sense. Touch me. It's so easy to leave. If you touch me, you'll understand what happiness is. No, it doesn't. It still doesn't make sense. This is the only song, by the way, with lyrics that are not from the goddamn book of poetry. And they're written by Trevor Nunn, the gentleman that helped Andrew Lloyd Webber make this from the Royal Shakespeare Company. They don't do that in the movie. There's a awful postscript on all of this at the end I don't even remember what it's called and I don't care Judy Dench sings it where she says now that you've heard about all of these cats let's apply it to your life <laughs> and so I guess that it's okay I guess it's okay a comment on the elements of the 19th century British society and this cat is supposed to be that person and this cat is this social class I don't care why would I care about that in the 80s? British people love this. Maybe you have to have the cultural memory of a British person to love this. Listen, my offer stands. I will have my first guest ever on I Need, to you, I Need You to Like Musicals if somebody wants to come explain cats to me. First of all, you can't just be... Let me amend this. You need to write an, an abstract or a... Um, what is it in the scholarly journals? Give me like a short paragraph summarizing what your arguments, just so I know you're not some loon and that you're not going to come on here and say, it's a pretty song. That's not enough. Pretty melody is not enough. That's going to be the title of this episode. A pretty melody is not enough. I bet it isn't. I haven't thought of it yet. I need a better one. So listen, I don't even have any final thoughts on cats. I've said enough about cats. Cats is bad. Of all the musicals we've talked about this week, Cats is the worst one. Uh, I know that I said I would talk about redeeming qualities, and the only thing I, the only times I came near talking about re redeeming qualities is saying, "Yeah, that's catchy." Rum tum tugger is a da 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 da. That doesn't mean it should be a musical. This is the worst show that we've talked about yet, guys. I feel really fucked up over it. I feel uh, traumatized. Do you remember in the 2016 election when um, Hillary Clinton's website was, or I don't know if it was her website or her campaign ads or whatever, they were doing a thing where they were, it's like pick a year. Uh, okay, uh, and I, don't, I won't have these 
right on, but like, okay, the year is 1979. Hillary was uh, uh, lobbying to Congress to make things better for the Pacific Ocean. Donald Trump was uh, getting rich off of, uh, you know, racist uh, housing zoning laws. Or 1993, Hillary Clinton was trying to get everybody health care. Donald Trump was uh, developing a shitty reality show. The point was, uh, you contrast this with that, uh, and of course nobody read that that didn't already want to vote for Hillary Clinton. None of uh, the deplorables uh, went to Hillary Clinton's website, so, you know. But we all uh, were very confident in how uh, smart and good and right and capable we are. Uh, but that did not translate to votes. My point is, I would love for someone to make one of those for 1982, in this case, which is, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber was writing a horrific, nonsensical, nightmare trash musical about cats. Stephen Sondheim was workshopping Sunday in the Park with George, the Pulitzer Prize winning work of art at Playwrights Horizons. Like that would be great because this is that that's like that that would arguably be um, Sondheim's peak in Andrew Lloyd Webber's Valley, and it's a good way to show how much better Sondheim is. But again, um, I'm stuck in the '90s where there was such a thing as a Sondheim Lloyd Webber rivalry, which there isn't anymore because Sondheim is dead, Lloyd Webber is old, and Sondheim left behind an, uh, enough work that we anybody that's reasonable, reasonably minded, reasonable minded. Can declare him the clear winner. I will, however, give you a transition into the next show we're going to talk about. Um, the year is 1983. Cameron McIntosh, uh, six months ago, he opened Cats on Broadway. He's the producer, by the way. We didn't really talk about Cameron McIntosh, but he's the big muckety-muck that did all these. He's responsible for the uh, big budget, big spectacle musicals like Cats and Les Mis and all of them. Uh, his buddy, Peter Farrago, sends him a concept album in the mail called Les Miserables. It's all in French. It's a concept album. He says, you know, we could make a lot of money doing an English language version of this show. That brings us to Les Miserables. So, I'm going to pee before uh, and cleanse the palate here because I just, I'm in a bad mood. Hang on. All right, everyone, I'm back. Feeling a little bit better about things. I had a uh, Topo Chico and some peanuts and started looking forward to the nicer things in life. Like my dear, sweet husky Cosmo. He's coming to stay for a while. I got joint custody of a husky from my last relationship, and I'm really looking forward to uh, Cosmo coming here. Uh, and there are nice things in the world that are not Cats the Musical. What we're gonna do now <clears throat> is we're gonna talk about Les Miserables. So um, for a lot of people, like Les Miserables is their entire world. Like there are a lot of non-musical theater people that really like Les Miserables and have seen it over and over again. This is one that people tend to see over and over and over again when they're really into it. I noticed for my my brief uh, excursions into the world of opera, opera people really love Les Miserables. Now listen, I do not count myself among the fans of Les Miserables. Um, I think it is uh, not good. I think it is grossly overrated. Um, I mean, compared to Cats, you know, it's war and peace. But, um, I mean, at least it's, you get the sense uh, early on that you're in the hands of someone that's going to tell you a story and lead you somewhere. So thank God for that. And watching that after this, uh, in the form of the film, uh, same director, Tom Hooper of both, 
Um, I, I was very grateful. Here's the thing. Um, the best analogy I can make to Les Miserables is a carnival cruise. When you go on a carnival cruise, it has the tone of luxurious vacationing. But you don't want to look too closely because then you'll see the seams. Like that prime rib that they deliver on uh, to your your plate. You know, it's like, oh, look at us. We're out, we're out, we're wearing nice clothes and we're having a fancy dinner. Well, you don't want to look too closely at that prime rib or look at other people's plates and notice that it's the same mass-produced prime rib and that it probably costs somebody 75 cents. You know, and um, it's it's a very uh, managed, uh, fun, user-friendly version of high culture. I think that's what Les Mis is. And I think that's why maybe it appeals to opera people because it's... Uh, and I, I think I bored you all with this opinion already. It's, it reminds them, it's, it's, it's an opera people's way of cutting loose and letting their hair down. Um, and there are moments in the score where it feels like it's elevated, but as a whole, it is, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a Disneyfied high art. It's Disneyfied high art. It's a carnival cruise. That's how I feel about it. Am I pretentious? You tell me. I don't know. I don't sit around uh, consuming a lot of uh, non-Disneyfied high art. I may not be in a position to make this judgment. But it's trying to ride the line between pop uh, and musical theater and opera and literature. And it is wobbly in that sense. It's not really... Um, it's not as serious as it wants us to take it, I think. And it's not as fun as it wants to be. So it ends up being this weird hybrid... But people love it, and God bless them. Brief history of Les Miserables. It started as a uh, concept album that we discussed before in French. Same guys as, Les, as Miss Saigon we talked about. This is Claude Michel Schoenberg and Alain Boublil. Uh, it's finally uh, done live on stage at Palais des Sports in France in 1980. When it gets to Macintosh, Cameron Macintosh in England, uh, they do it at the Royal Shakespeare Company. It's a Big box office smash with mostly negative reviews. And we know what that means, right? That's always a red flag. Um, the, Sunday, the Sunday Telegraph said it was a lurid Victorian melodrama produced with Victorian lavishness. The Observer called it a witless and synthetic entertainment. Scholars condemned it for converting classic literature into a musical. Okay, shut up. That's, you can do that, and there's a way to do that. This doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. But this is not a, a good way of doing that. You can make a nice musical out of some classic literature. I can't give you one example of it right now, but I'm sure it's been done. Uh, you know, the musicals that I like. Uh, um, it's the sixth longest running show in Broadway history. Once it gets to Broadway, it finally closed in the year 20, uh, sorry, 2003. That's when it closed on Broadway. Les Miserables. However, it's London production ran from 1985 to 2019, making it the second longest running musical in the world! What do you think of that? That's worldwide. How long, I didn't even count the years on that. What are, what are we looking at here? That's a 34 years? It's a 34 year run, guys. What's the one thing, the show that ran longer than that? You tell me. Let's say it together. It's weird. If you, if you don't already have this factoid in your head, this will surprise you. You got it? Don't Google it. Let's say it together on three. 
One, two, three. You didn't say it either. <laughs> uh, the Fantastics. That's weird, right? And there's a whole story behind that. We'll do that. Uh, we'll talk about that on the Fantastics episode. I like the Fantastics a lot more than I like Les Miserables. Sorry. Uh, they make it into a movie in the year 2012. This is a pretty good movie musical. It's okay, story-wise. It's a good entry point if you want to be told the story. If you just want to rock out to the music, then I would suggest listening to one of the earlier cast recordings. Uh, preferably the highlights, the Broadway highlights with Colm Wilkinson, Patti Lapone, and all those people. Um, the making of this film is a crazy long history of development. It was going on and on and on. It was going to be made in 1988 at first by Alan Parker. Ugh, that would have sucked. He's the guy that made Evita and The Wall. They tried again in 1992. They tried again in 2005. They abandoned it. They tried it in 2009, and they finally get the ball rolling on it. They get Tom Hooper to direct it. Uh, they have a long list of possible women to play Fantine, including Amy Adams, Jessica Biel, and Tammy Blanchard, Marion Cotillard, and Kate Winslet. Uh, the list of people to play Eponine. They, they might go with ScarJo. <clears throat> they might go with Leah Michelle. They might do Miley Cyrus. They might do Taylor Swift. They might do Evan Rachel Wood. That would have been weird if Taylor Swift is Eponine. You can't really tell from the Cats movie, but I, can she act? Is that uh, confirmed? Does she have any acting ability? I don't know. So um, they, they did a kind of a groundbreaking thing in terms of sound. It's not that groundbreaking, but it is unusual for a musical of this musical uh, prestige where um, they did like what they did with Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady, where they just they had the singing done live acoustically. This was what uh, Tom Hooper said later about it. This is a quote. He said, I just felt ultimately it was a more natural way of doing it. You know, when actors do dialogue, they have freedom in time. They have freedom in pacing. They can stop for a moment. They can speed up. I simply wanted to give the actors the normal freedoms that they would have. If they need a bit for an emotion or a feeling to form in the eyes before they sing, I can take that time. If they cry, they can cry through a song. When you're doing it to playback, to the millisecond, you have to copy what you do. You have no freedom in the moment. And acting is the illusion of being free in the moment. I mean, I support this. Good deal. Good idea. It does seem in a couple places. I noticed this in the movie theater. I did see this in the movie theater in 2012. It does seem like the score on some of these songs is like down very low in the mix. Um, maybe that just had to be that way. I don't know. I don't know much about sound as you may have gleaned from the poor quality of this podcast. I uh, was aware that Les Miserables was a phenomenon when I was a child, but I didn't really uh, get into it. It wasn't really in the canon of the musicals I liked. Uh, I, I watched in French class, uh, my French teacher in ninth grade showed us the 90s movie of Les Miserables that is not a musical. It's just a film adaptation without music. Anyone ever seen that with Liam Neeson, Jeffrey Rush, Uma Thurman? It's pretty good. Pretty good. So that's how I got to know the story. I got to know the story of the show before I heard the heard or saw the musical, which is a good way to go, I think, with long, sprawling epics like this. It's like when you go to see Shakespeare on stage. I think it's a good idea to spend a little time reading 
the play, or if you're pressed for time, reading a synopsis of the play on the old Spark Notes. That's what I did before seeing Macbeth last summer here in Los Angeles at Griffith Park. The Independent Shakespeare Company does a free Shakespeare in the Park thing. If you're ever in L.A. in the summertime, uh, first of all, Griffith Park is one of the uh, most underrated uh, tourist destinations of Los Angeles. It is the biggest park within a city. I should tell you that bigger than Central Park. So suck it, New York City. Um, but uh, side note, when I did go to see Macbeth, uh, the Scottish play, <laughs> sorry, uh, at this park, I made a lavish picnic for Shailene and myself. And... Um, the first bite that I took of the food that I made in this picnic that was housed in this picnic basket that I'd bought online that was adorable, uh, a yellow jacket stung my tongue. It followed the guacamole from my hand to my mouth and then stung me on the tongue. And so then I really couldn't eat anything else and I was in excruciating pain. And then at intermission, I went to urgent care. There you go. So if you go to see the Shakespeare in the Park, uh, I recommend uh, don't open your picnic basket until the sun goes down. Less likely to have yellow jackets fuck with you. There you go. Also, um, for all of us millennials, maybe elder millennials only, like myself, uh, who uh, came of age in the mid to late 90s, you know uh, Les Miserables from watching Dawson's Creek. I think it's the end of the first season where Joey, played by Katie Holmes, is in some sort of pageant in the talent portion. She sings On My Own from Les Miserables, one of the hits from the show, and it sort of mirrors her real feelings for Dawson, blah, 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 blah. So I first heard that, but it is very weird when you see Dawson's Creek because she is clearly lip-syncing to someone who is not Katie Holmes, and it does not match the way that Katie Holmes speaks on any level, so it's very strange. It's... Uh, Another uncanny valley thing, uh, like the cats. Uh, I first listened to the Highlights album sometime uh, in high school, and it's good, because it's got Colm Wilkinson on it. We talked about him. He's so good. He's got a very recognizable voice. He's uh, the, the quintessential Jean Valjean because of his interesting speech patterns. One day more! And in the film, Hugh Jackman is imitating him you, a little bit, you can tell. It's just the way that everyone thinks of Jean Valjean. I... I feel like in high school, like, I studied Les Miserables. Once I really got into it, my friends were into it, I got into it. Uh, my friend Michael and I used to sing Confrontation together. I did the Valjean, he did the Javert. We played it on the piano at my friend Eric's house all the time. Um, I really got into it, and as a completist or completionist, depending on which form of that word you like to use, um, I listened to the complete symphonic recordings. And I don't think it's worth it, honestly. I think you're better off with the highlights version. You don't need to hear the whole goddamn thing. The cast also is not as good. The Valjean is not as good. Uh, certain people aren't as good. The Eponine on that one is from the Japanese cast. Her name is uh, Keho Shimada. And she did not speak a word of English. And she sang phonetic the English parts phonetically on there. And somebody explained that to me. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's why it sounds so strange. Give that a listen. Listen to Eponine on the complete symphonic recordings of Les Miserables. It's someone that doesn't speak English. Um, I almost was in a children's theater production of Les Miserables. Someone needs to explain this to me. Um, I don't know if this happens anymore. I don't know if this is a West Coast thing. But there was a phenomenon when I was growing up. If you were in a youth theater program... When they put on the show, there would always be a few adults. 
um, sprinkled into the cast, playing the leads. They would always charge children and their families money to be in these shows. Um, when I did Fiddler on the Roof and I did Grease, it was that way. I don't think we were, anyone got charged for that, actually. Maybe they were. Shit, I don't remember. But um, anyway, this whole other place that was not the one that did those other two shows. Um, my friend was in it. He said to me and my other friend, hey, they need people to fill in these roles, these male roles. Can you audition for them? And we had this weird audition where we went to these people's house and it was a bunch of older people in La Cunada, Flint Ridge in the fancy house, I think. I have, this was during my uh, drug years and so I have a very fuzzy memory of this. And they had us sing, and I remember my voice was not uh, working as it should at the time. And they just kind of handed us the roles. Uh, my, they, they gave my friend Michael the role of Javert, and they, they cast me as Anjaras, the fucking leader of the students. But it was this weird pyramid scheme structure to the program, where everybody, most of the people in the cast were children, except for a few 18, 19, 20-year-olds like us. But you had to sell ads in order to... You had to pledge to sell ads in order to be in the cast. Anyway, like I said, I could have the facts wrong on this. A little bit fuzzy. I didn't end up doing it. I dropped out because uh, I was a stoner. And I was working at another job, at like a summer camp and being high all the time. Anyway, uh, let's get into it piece by piece here. Well, I was about to say enough about me, but here's another thing about me, everybody. Uh, the intro music to Les Miserables. Dun dun, bang ba bang. Dun 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 dun. Bum 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 bum. Bum 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 bum. Okay, um, that's a more or less what it sounds like. The first time I ever made a full-length album of my songs was in the year 2011, and uh, I, I recorded them all very crudely on Audacity. Uh, I had the audacity to make an album on Audacity. Hey, how you doing? And I used all these weird little keyboard sounds, and the woman I was living with at the time was like uh, very <laughs> unsupportive of it because she thought I was a weirdo. She thought I was like Ross from Friends when he like goes into the basement and makes his sounds, and maybe I was. But I still look back at that album as uh, the first time that I decided to, uh, you know, uh, do something. And and I feel like the stuff I ended up doing later was, uh, who cares? My point is, the first track on that album is called Lame Is. And the reason I ended up calling that at that is because the end of it uh, reminded me of the opening to Lame Is. Lame Is. Get it? And uh, let me, here's a sample of that. <laughs> See what I mean? I'm not saying it's as good as the opening to Lame is. It's just reminiscent. And in case you were wondering, yes, that effect at the end where it sounds like horns, that is the horn patch on a cheap keyboard doubled by a harmonica to make the breathy quality of a horn. I was very proud of that at that stage of my life. Anyway, um, Lame is the opening. It's uh, big and grand like that, uh, but better. The, the first thing that people criticized about the movie, uh, with, uh, for good reason, is the singing of Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe's performance in this movie is bizarre. Uh, we all know that Russell Crowe is a very good actor uh, in things such as The Insider and uh, the, the, what all the other things, Beautiful Mind, LA Confidential. 
But um, not only is his singing quite bad all the way through this thing, he doesn't really act at all. Like, he doesn't really do anything. He just kind of stands there. Maybe he's just so focused on singing badly that he forgot to be Russell Crowe. I don't, I don't know. It's weird. Uh, and every time he opens his mouth, it's, uh, it's bad. He's like he's doing an impression of a guy that's singing in Les Miserables. Now bring me prisoner two four six oh one. Your time is up and your parole's begun. It's not very good. The beginning is so cool though when they're pulling that ship in. Is that how they pulled ships <laughs> into ports in those days? Um, do not write to me to answer that question and then have be interviewed by me on the podcast because I I don't care that much. Um, now Javert, even if he's not played badly by Russell Crowe, is just a dull, badly written character. One note: a lot of these characters are. Um, in fact, I, I would go so far as to say all of them. I don't think there's one character in um, Les Misérables that's like written with any depth or nuance that requires an actor that is good. In this movie, you see some impressive uh, feats done by pretty good actors of. Um, you know, elevating the material. But as far as what's on the page, it's not very good. And uh, Javert is one of the worst. Like, Javert is just bad guy. Um, without much more to it. Uh, you, we get a cameo from Colm Wilkinson at the beginning of the movie. Um, the original Valjean. He plays that bishop. And it's great to see him. Um <laughs> So, okay, in the show, what's weird is some of the hits from the show, Empty Chairs at Empty Tables and On My Own, those are two examples. Like, if you buy the highlights, those are definitely going to be on there. Those are in the Broadway fake book of Les Miserables, those selections. They do the reprises of those songs before the main songs. Like, the bishop sings uh, a version of Empty Chairs at Empty Tables. Remember this, my brother, seeing this some higher plan. And same thing with On My Own. When, Fan uh, spoiler alert, when Fantine is dying... Uh, she sings, oh, da, 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 you come from God in heaven, tell Cosette I love her and I'll see her when I wake. Anyway, um, Jean Valjean, when he steals that silver from the bishop, it's really the only time that he does anything wrong in the whole fucking show. Um, God, yeah, that uh, took my silver, took my flight! And my girlfriend, Shailene, watching this with me was like, oh, come on, idiot, don't do that. And uh, I wish there was more to the idea of Jean Valjean transcending his actual, like, badness. Like, having him do something bad. Because this loaf of bread bullshit, he stole a loaf of bread and he got 20 years in jail for it. Or however many years he got. He did 19. Five years for what he did, the rest because he tried to run. 24601. That's his uh, prisoner number. I don't know if you guys knew that. Anyway, I mean, that would be a better show, right? If he really was uh, this guy that was bad that's looking for some sort of grace. But it's, it's at odds with the fact that we never see him do anything bad. We only see him do deeply heroic things all the way through. To the point that it becomes annoying. Can we agree on that? Jean Valjean in the second act is annoyingly good. His song, What Have I Done, is a very beautiful song. Uh, one of the highlights of the score. What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? And then... And that's really only reprised one more time with Chavert's Suicide. We'll hear about that later. 
And that goes into, this is all prologue. This is the longest prologue in the history of prologues. Uh, and then it goes into, at the end of the day or another day, oh, and that's all you can say for the left of the poor. The original Broadway highlights has like a drum machine on that, similar to the one in Phantom of the Opera, the title song. And that's the one thing. Also, Into the Woods, the witch rap. Those 80s musicals, like that's the one thing in the revivals that they've gotten rid of. I don't know too much about Phantom of the Opera, so maybe I'm wrong about that. But the... Um, where it's clearly a drum machine. Um, I don't think they do that anymore. The witch rap in Into the Woods. And, of course, at the end of the day, there's a little... The synthesizer. Um, as much as I like the song at the end of the day, and I think it's a good... Op- I don't know if you can even call it an opening number because there's been so much content before this. Um the way that it tells the story is good, blah, blah, blah. I don't like the idiom at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, and I don't like uh, people saying that in daily life. That's all I'm, That's all I want to say about that. Well, at the end of the day, you have to do A, B, and C. And Anne Hathaway does a great job in this movie. And it's. Uh, I don't really like her that much in other things. I really like the movie Rachel Getting Married. If you're somebody in recovery, Rachel Getting Married is an amazing portrayal of recovery. And movies get that wrong all the time, but that movie does a great job. She does a great job in this. <clears throat> Hugh Jackman does a great job in this. He's doing a Colm Wilkinson impression, like I said, but it's very good. Um, <clears throat> in At the End of the Day, I, I do like to point out shitty lyrics, uh, and that, I'm going to do that in this. I didn't do that in Cats just because it was just so pervasively bad all the way through. But uh, the foreman says, you play a virgin in the light, but need no urgent in the night. That sucks. Urgent, virgin. Uh, in the movie, they make it. They do a great job of making Hugh Jackman look different when he's a prisoner. So it's like you, you credibly would think that someone might not recognize him. That was great. Good job, the movie, Les Misérables. Um, also, so the the martyrdom of Fantine. Also, I guess it's a it's a musical about martyrdom. But it would have been great to see Fantine make one genuine mistake or be a shithead to somebody for a good like no good reason. But she's this Christ-like martyr that just all that she, her uh, hamarsha, like all the, the mistake she made was just letting some guy fuck her and leave. And then everything fell apart. Uh, my girlfriend did not agree with me about this. We <laughs> argued. The scene of lovely ladies uh, is also very good storytelling, especially in the movie. It's a really good visual musical representation of what it would take to turn a lower middle class working woman into a uh, really desperate, fucked up sex worker. They added the taking out of the tooth. It's unclear why anyone wants to buy her tooth, but someone buys her tooth and they pull that thing out. I, my entire life, have never understood the appeal of the song I Dreamed a Dream. It just seems to me like it's the same melody uh, line repeating over and over again, Just and then they bring it up a step. Um, and also the content of the, the, the sentiment of it, the lyrics, like what a mundane dream to have. All that she dreamed is that love would never die and that God would be forgiving. <laughs> the device that they use in this film that you do a lot is they have a tight close up on a character while they're singing a really sad soliloquy. And they did that in, um, uh, what have I done? Sweet Jesus. What have I done? Uh, and then they, this is the second time they do it. This is for sure the best use of that. And it's because Anne Hathaway is just really good in it. 
But then they do it a million more times. And by the time we get to On My Own, I'm done with it. Like, I, I'm bored with it. We don't need to be up the motherfucker's nose while they sing uh, about how sad they are at a certain point. Tell me quickly what's the story, who, them, what, and why, and where. Let him give a full description, let him answer to Javert. We hear that theme a million times, and I think it's the most repeated theme, and uh, I hate it, especially when Russell Crowe sings it, and he mostly does. Javert probably sings it the most. And it's also, like, too much. Like, wh who would come into the scene and say that much? You know, we need to shorten the time on Les Miserables, that's for sure. It's too long. And it's stuff like that. And then he keeps on going in this nest of da, 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 let one speak who saw it all, who laid hands on this good man here. What's the substance of this brawl? It could have just been like, hey, what's going on here, guys? <laughs> um, here's another bad lyric. Where will she end this child without a friend? There's a huge um, grand musical moment in this scene, or Fantine, on the, Monsieur, don't mock me now, I pray. It's bad enough, I've lost my pride. You let your foreman send me away. Yes, you were there and looked aside. That's a, like a huge moment musically for not that big of a moment in the story and something that doesn't repeat at any point in the score, I don't think, unless I missed it. Blah, 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 blah. A lot of things happen. The song Who Am I is a great song. Highlights is the way to go. Like I said, uh, Cole Wilkinson on this is great. Two, four, six, oh, one. Very good. I think that what I learned is that um, Les Miserables should not be a sung through musical. It should be shortened and they should just use the Highlights CD and choose those songs. Except cut a few of them. Let's get rid of empty chairs and empty tables and a few of these boring fucking songs. What does Fantine die of? I wasn't sure. I bet I could look that up. That's probably in the Victor Hugo. Oh, yeah. This is based on a book by Victor Hugo, everybody. I didn't get into that in the history of the musical. Um, and, of course, as we all know, who took a single English class in our lives, uh, Victor Hugo, this, this, this book is serialized, which is why it's so fucking long. He was getting paid by the word. Confrontation is a song you sing with your homie uh, if you're a gentleman that grows up in musical theater. Uh, the smart way of singing this song is to know when to hang back. Because if you don't know, there's a counterpoint section where Valjean and Javert are singing at the same time. But their parts they're singing are not always created equal. Men like you can never change. Men like you have never changed. No, 24601. My duties to the law. You have no rights. Come with me, 24601. Now the wheel has turned around. Jean Valjean is nothing now. That's when you want to hold back. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're Valjean and let Javert have that time. But then uh, when you're good, there, I am warning you, Javert. I'm a stronger man by far. There is power in me and my race is not yet run. You want to be able to let Valjean take the spotlight on that. And it's even if you're doing this uh, without microphones, you want to definitely hang back and give your scene partner <laughs> the spotlight in certain parts of that song. Who cares about this, these opinions? I want to end this. I think I can get this done in a nice tight uh, hour and 20 minutes. That's my prediction for this. I have 20 minutes until I need to leave my house. So I'm going to rush through this because I'm not having fun. Guys, I'm not having fun today making this podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. I, I can't believe you're still listening. I can't believe you've listened to any of these. Uh, is that self-deprecating? Is that self-defeating? All right. God damn it. Stay on task if we're going to finish this in 20 minutes. 
Um, in the movie, Hugh Jackman jumps into the fucking water off of the thing, in the, a la The Fugitive, and it's very cool. We get a little, th- we go to where little Cosette is, and she sings Castle on a Cloud. Shut up. Fuck that kid. Fuck Castle on a Cloud. Helena Barnum Carter plays Madame Tenardier. She's the first Tenardier we see. She partially redeems herself from her Sweeney Todd offenses. Um, and I think the reason is because the character of Madame Tenardier is written so arch and so clumsily uh, uh, one note that you know, her doing her downplaying thing is nice because she's not – there's a tendency to cast a large woman that's like, ah, I used to dream that, ah, <laughs> but she's doing it. I used to dream that I could meet a prince. She did this uh, with Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd, and that was terrible because Mrs. Lovett is a cleverly drawn character. That's my take on Helena Bottom Carter's performances. Uh, we get Sasha Baron Cohen playing Tenardier, singing Master of the House. Now, he, as we all know, is a funny man. Uh, Master of the House is not a funny song. The French do not understand what comedy is. We know this from their appreciation of Jerry Lewis and the, the uh, supposed the alleged comedies of Tartuffe. <laughs> Wait, not Tartuffe. That's the name of the fucking play. Moliere. God, I'm a Philistine. I don't even know the names of things. The Master of the House. Uh, have you ever seen Seinfeld? Where the, the Elaine's father, uh, that episode, where George has Master of the House in his head. Uh, the song won't get out of his head. And he's like, oh, Schumann, it's going to drive you crazy. Um, anyway, Sasha Baron Cohen does the best he can with this material. And he makes it funnier than probably most people do. I feel like 2012, though, and his performance in this is the beginning of the watering down of Sasha Baron Cohen into a more digestible uh, person. But maybe I'm wrong. Is it me? I felt like the movie Borat in 2006 was the funniest, most disruptive, subversive thing ever. And everything since then, Bruno and then the Borat sequel... And his performance is another things. It just does not have the teeth of Borat or the Ali G show. But it could just be because I grew up. I got old. It could be. I just don't understand things. I don't know. Let's have a debate about that. Write in and tell me about that. The making of the sausages is fucking foul during that song in the movie. The movie adds an extra song. And it's already endless. They add an extra fucking song for Hugh Jackman in the carriage after he has a new daughter in Cosette. She's his new daughter. And it's the most forgettable, unnecessary song. Did they really think they were going to win an Oscar for best song with that fucking turd? Javert then sings uh, Stars, which if you're a baritone that can't go above an E-flat, this is a song that you bring into auditions unless you have a smart music teacher that tells you not to because everybody does this. Um, and this is where you start to wonder about the homoerotic nature of Javert's obsession with Valjean uh, and maybe vice versa. Maybe it's, you know, it's a, not since Henry Higgins and Pickering has there been such a uh, clear homoerotic subtext as Javert, his pursuit of Valjean. What's he going to do when he gets him? They add a thing in the movie where they, they he says, hey, you, you lift that post or whatever the fuck it is. And then he watches Valjean lift that post, and it's supposed to be a foreshadowing for later when he sees him lift something else, the runaway car. Oh, there's a runaway car. But it, it kind of works because you think uh, Javert just wants to, you know, beat off watching Valjean lift up that post. 
The song stars, if you ask me, is boring. It's do 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 do. Songs that do that are boring. What do you call that? An arpeggio? I don't know. It's like an unchained melody. When the I don't like it. We have a bit of a time jump. Wait, maybe that already happened. There was a time jump before stars, everybody. We meet Gavrosh. Jesus H. Christ is Gavrosh annoying. Gavrosh, the child, is there to remind you that um, we're dealing with a musical and not an opera. Because with all these guys singing like this, we have a little kid and he's belting a lot. I'm a little kid and I'm a belting a lot. Um, that's what Gavrosh does. This is also marks the, <clears throat> ooh, excuse me, I'm getting all upset here. This also marks the part in the musical where we meet the Bernie Bros, so to speak. Uh, Andras and Marius and all these fucking students. I felt very hostile towards them on this watch today. I felt very not on the side of these students. And uh, I say Bernie Bros, of course, tongue-in-cheek. I was a Bernie supporter in my time. Uh, but it's, the, I don't think that the musical takes their revolution seriously, nor should it, because it's fictional anyway. And, and uh, but I think that the idea is that these boys are naive. And uh, it's sort of tied into the ending. They, do you hear the people sing and the standing of the waving the flags on the barricade? That is the point, not the end result of what they're doing it for. And I don't know, that's fine, I guess. Um... Marius in the film is played by Eddie Redmayne, who should get some sort of medal for being the most Caucasian man who ever lived. This man is radically Caucasian. He looks like he was raised uh, indoors with the shades drawn. So, yeah, um, they do their whole thing. and uh, the Red, the blood of angry men, black, the dark of ages past. That's a terrible song. That's one of the worst songs in the show. It's just, why do we have to just sit through this thing? There could have been so many cuts to make this thing more digestible. They really needed an editor. I don't understand. This is a big point. This is an overall point. If you're going to do a French story, why are you doing a British accent if you're an actor that's not British? It's horrible and annoying and confusing to do that. Is it just to have one uniform tone? Because all of the lower class people in this are cockney, and then all of the high born people are very posh. <laughs> but um, Anne Hathaway doesn't need to do any of that. She's an American. American girl. I'm getting loopy. I want this episode to be over. The drunk student, <laughs> the drunk guy, Grantaire. Uh, I don't know. The students are badly written, and they all sort of bleed into each other. The only one with any sort of personality is Grantaire, and he doesn't really have any. He's defined by the fact that he drinks. And the character all, like, carries around a bottle, usually on stage. I think it's in the Complete Symphonic recordings. Every He sings, like, Some wide and say, what's going on? As if to say, this guy is drunk. It's pretty bad. Amanda Seyfried plays Cosette in the film. This is a thankless role. She's a lot more talented than this role uh, gives her credit for. Uh, I'm not going to lie. When she first emerged in Mean Girls, I had a little crush on her uh, when I was younger. I, 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 full disclosure, I have never seen the film of Mamma Mia. I will for Karaoke Hell Part 2 in our next season, maybe. But uh, I've still never seen it. Sorry. 
In My Life is a, a boring, pointless song. And then for no reason at all, they sing another boring, pointless song called A Heart Full of Love. You definitely want to skip these tracks when you're going through that soundtrack. It's just a falling in love song. Uh, there's nothing special about it. Eponine chimes in, whatever. It's a love triangle. We get it. We didn't need two songs in a row about it. Valjean makes a nonsensical, rash decision to move out of France because he hears the sound of Eponine screaming outside of his house because the Thenardiers are going to break in, but she foils their plot by screaming. And then he just right away goes like, oh, that must be Javert after me. We must move to England. Doesn't make any sense. It's really just to manipulate us into our Act 1 finale, the legendary One Day More, which is uh, known as an all-skate. You know what an all-skate is? Lin-Manuel Miranda explained this to me. I mean, okay, let me not get ahead of myself. We sing On My Own before that, which is a, a, the song that all of uh, the musical theater girls want to sing. A lot of people sing it at this restaurant I work at also. The, the line that I like in that is that in the rain, the pavement shines like silver. I also feel like we should give credit and blame to the gentleman who translated this into English, Herbert Kretzmer, uh, who died in 2020 or some, somewhere about there recently. He recently died. Um, the pavement shines like silver in the rain. It does. You ever notice that? Take a look at the <laughs> pavement in the rain. It shines like silver. Uh, One Day More is very exciting. It's one of the high points of the show. It's an all skate, which is, means it's an act one finale in which all of the characters sing a little sample of songs they've sung earlier. One Day More is the most famous example of this. Famous example of this. Uh, 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 Non-Stop from Hamilton is another example of this. Not the main theme, but later on in that song, people chime in helpless isn't this enough and then fucking watch they're asking me to lead i'm doing the best i can you get what i'm saying thank you here's the thing about act two of les miserables it is very boring they open it with do you hear the people sing which um i think is a little bit dull people like that song the teachers uh, in uh, when they went on strike in west virginia they sang that song was it West Virginia? Somebody, some teacher strike, they sang that song. It was a viral video. And um, I hate the song A Little Fall of Rain because she keeps saying, don't worry, A Little Fall of Rain can hardly hurt me now. No one was talking about the rain, Eponine. He was worried because you're shot with a gun. Stop talking about the fucking rain and the fact that it'll make the flowers grow. And Valjean getting all involved with Marius in the second act is fucking weird. Why does he? Does this make more sense in the Victor Hugo? Because the idea that he needs to strongly vet the man that's in love with his daughter and then go join the barricade and then right away loves him to the point that he sings bring him home and say he's like the son I might have known if God had granted me a son. God on high Great example of a song that's pretty but has no utility in the story. Drink With Me is a song that I hate with all of my the, the passion in my soul, especially the pretty girls that went to our heads, witty girls that went to our beds. Go fuck yourself. That's a sweaty, double sweaty rhyme. Double sweat. Get that shit out of here. What if you're reading the songs in the program and you see in the second act there's a song called Javert's Suicide? You've really ruined that for everybody. And call me crazy, I swear to God, that's what the song at least used to be called. In the Wikipedia, it's listed as Javert's Soliloquy. I think it's called Javert's Suicide. At least that's how I remember it. 
Russell Crowe just really fucking fails at that song. It's a good song. It's a one moment at all that Javert can have any uh, sort of change to his fucking veneer. And Russell Crowe, actor extraordinaire, does not bother to do that. It's almost like he's, I don't know. I mean, this, this goddamn Eddie Redmayne does his empty chairs, boring. And he's just, he, this, Eddie Redmayne is a, a blind salamander raised in a lightless cave. And it's just, let's end this. Let's end this episode. Seriously, I'm sick of this. Jean Valjean, by the end, goes from being a martyr to being like the kind of person that you say, hey, don't be such a martyr. This idea of him leaving for her sake, every decision that he makes in the second act is like, you didn't need to do that. You're being melodramatic about this. Like, stick around. First of all, Javert is dead. Surely somebody could have told somebody that. And who cares that you're an anonymous donor that saved Marius's life in the sewer? Just tell him that you saved his life. Why does it make you so wonderful that you never told him it was you? Shut up. Why is that wedding choral thing so good, by the way? The it does not sound like the rest of the show. It sounds like Prokofiev or some shit. And then the Tenardiers come in one more time being not funny, but we're supposed to think it's funny. And then Valjean has to die for quite a long time. And I'm over it. Valjean, will you die? It's a little much. And then he, as he's dying, he says, Forgive me all my trespasses, all zero of them. Because he did nothing wrong at all. He's Job. The ending of the movie is kind of cool because it goes back to the barricade and it shows all the people that have died and they're singing. And that's maybe that's the point of the musical is that Okay, it's Les Miserables, it's the Miserables. Everybody's been miserable this whole entire fucking time. The only point where there was any vitality or joy was the anticipation leading up to that revolution on the barricade. That's when everybody was truly happy. It's like uh, when you're a drug addict, uh, or even just a marijuana addict like me in the year 2007, um, the best moment of your day is not doing the drugs, smoking the pot, and lying on a couch. The best moment is when you're in the car on the way to the dealer's house. It's the uh, forward motion of that. And so I think Tom Hooper deserves some credit here because the lyrics are not doing any work to tell you what any of this was about. I know they say to love another person is to see the face of God. Okay, great, whatever. Thanks a lot for that insight, Les Miserables. But the idea that then we flash back to the barricade, but also everyone is there, everyone that's died, even the people that died prior to the barricade, like Fantine, it's like, okay, we saw all this pain, all of this melodrama, all of this suffering. Let's go back to that one moment of forward motion uh, when things looked like they might be okay. And that uh, made the ending of Les Mis interesting for maybe the first time. So like I said, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. I know people enjoy Les Miserables. Uh, I don't like it overall. And I'm, I didn't like recording this podcast at all. This was an unpleasant experience. Um, I'm really glad that I got through it. I'm going to quickly come up with a closing line. I don't, I don't want to tease next week because I have no idea what we're going to... Every time I say what's going to happen in the future, it doesn't happen. Let me just do a closing line and get the fuck out of here and go pick up my sweet husky Cosmo. Uh, fuck this! It's so easy to leave this. Man, I hated this podcast. I might throw it all out. All right, that's all I got. I'll see you next week, everybody. Uh, worthier pastures, friendlier skies. 
And until next week, I want you to remember that I will be laughing at you while I'm having my men. I'll be nothing but trouble again and again. You must sack me today. Because at the end of the day, you're another day colder. And that's all you can say for the life of... Uh, okay, bye. <laughs>